How can you deliver more value by bringing together clinical expertise, financial understanding, and cost containment? We'll find out on this two-part episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Benazon Healthcare Advocacy. Your clients and their employees expect more service, more responsiveness, and more help than ever before. You need to focus on building your book. How do you do both? Benazon. To learn more, go to benazon.com or click the Benazon logo at the top of the shiftshapersonline.com page. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. Even though millennials are kind of taking over the universe and now becoming the majority in, in the workforce, there are still economic conditions being such as they are, a significant cohort of baby boomers, older people who are managing chronic and oftentimes multiple chronic conditions. Is that something that advisors who get into this universe need to be aware of? How do they find those people and what kinds of things can they do when they do find them? Well, that is a very interesting and complex question. So I'll, I'll sort of try to break that down. I would say you, you absolutely need to be aware of those particular people. You need to be aware of your folks who, who have chronic ongoing slash expensive conditions. You need to be able to identify them. You need to be able to keep them well, first of all. And then you also need to be able to manage them when they start to have claims. And identifying them is is actually fairly easy overall. You, you simply need to have either a case management company or a disease management company in place who can help you identify these folks. And you kind of look at every single chart in terms of top 10 most catastrophic conditions and one, two, and three are cancer. And, and then it sort of falls off from there. Coronary artery disease is an example. And that kind of lags behind in number four. Premature babies are very expensive, but really impossible pr- to predict. There's no way for you to know who's going to get pregnant in your group and whether or not they're going to be a high risk pregnancy or somehow be at at risk for preterm birth. But cancer, cancer, cancer is something that we can look at. And then all of the things that sort of go along with some of the cardiac conditions and more chronic things like diabetes, et cetera. Diabetes in and of itself doesn't tend to be very expensive, but it's complications such as what we call end-stage renal disease, where your kidneys stop working, that's inordinately expensive because dialysis is very expensive. You're actually better off from a financial perspective if that patient can get a kidney transplant versus being on dialysis for an entire year. It's actually less expensive to do that, but organs are tough to come by and dialysis is, is obviously readily available. So it is, I would say, most important to identify who is at a risk person for you. Put them in a program that allows them to be managed. Somebody is checking in with them, making sure that they're taking their medications. Compliance is the number one reason that patients tend to deteriorate. They're just not compliant. 
And why is that? Well, I will tell you, for a lot of people, it's cost. And not to digress too much, but kind of the big thing in our world in the past year has been the emergence of hepatitis C therapies. Hepatitis C has been around forever, truly forever, but it never was really a high dollar condition because most people, there weren't too many drugs available. There was basically two, which was interferon and ribavirin, and they're pretty tough to take, particularly interferon. They have a lot of terrible side effects. They can cause what we call bone marrow suppression, where your red blood cells get decreased and your white blood cells decrease and your platelets decrease, and so people end up having to go off of them. And so a lot of times... They couldn't complete the therapies. So you didn't really see too much in the way of costs. And then about three years ago, the market really broke wide open with the emergence of a lot of newer therapies, most of which are oral. And now we're at the point, and I won't go sort of through all the drugs, otherwise this would literally be a hepatitis C podcast, and I'm not sure your audience wants that. But if they do, we're happy to do it again just for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) We do it a lot. It's a big, big topic. But there are about six or seven new drugs that have come out for hepatitis C, which have eliminated not only the interferon, but even now the ribavirin regimen. And they're all pills. And so you have all of these people who previously were either undiagnosed because they, they weren't going to take the treatment anyway, because they, for whatever reason, they, they didn't want to do it or it wasn't going to work for them or who just had failed therapy before. And there's an estimated somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 million people in our country who have hepatitis C. So you now have, I would say, probably more than half of those people who are now on these drugs. So hepatitis C has simply exploded and the drugs are expensive. You take them for shorter periods of time, but they can cost anywhere from $90,000 to $100,000 for a 12-week course. Some of these people need to be on it for a lot longer, sometimes 24 weeks or in patients who might need a liver transplant, you might see it for 48 weeks. So those dollars start to tick up to, you know, we're talking about that $367,000 claim for a patient who was in the hospital for seven days. Well, this is for somebody who's on hepatitis C therapy for a year while they're waiting a liver transplant. That's seven hundred to $800,000. And then you have to take into account the transplant. So it is important to identify who are those people who are going to be at risk for things that we may not have considered so risky before? And managing them is of paramount importance when you can. Not everybody can be, can be managed, but when you can. And then if they end up in the hospital or needing some sort of treatment or have some sort of complication, truly aggressive intervention, proactive intervention is critical to making sure you got to be involved from day one at the hospital. You can't just try to figure it out once they get out of the the hospital. Somebody should be on the phone with that facility saying, hey, this is our patient or our employee. They're in your hospital. Just want to let you know, we're keeping an eye on the situation. There is really something about the the specter of surveillance that uh, keeps, you know, pretty much everybody, including hospitals, in some sort of check to a degree in which you can do that. You talked about managing them and at the risk of being naive here, let me ask a question. I think many practitioners who might not have had a lot of exposure in the tools that you can bring to bear in a self-insured universe, these are folks taking meds. How do you manage them? What do you do with those costs? Well, there, you know, it's interesting because I think you sort of, in the way you ask the question, kind of illustrate the the problem. A lot of people feel that they're 
isn't a lot that you can do when somebody is on a high dollar medication. And I know we talked, you know, sort of about diabetics. There's a couple of fairly high dollar cholesterol medications that came out recently. And when you talk about folks who are hemophiliacs, as an example, people who have factor eight deficiency where they have to get factor eight injections, those people are two and three million dollars a year. But there's a lot that you can do. There really is. And it's a mat, it's, it's truly a matter of committing to do it. So some of the options that you have are when you know somebody's going to be on a high dollar drug, look where you're getting it from. Try to source the drug from somewhere other than where you're paying in excess of, you know, 500, 600% above what you should be paying or a thousand percent above what you're paying. There's a lot of specialty pharmacies out there that give you the ability to get drugs at a much cheaper price. So that's kind of the first thing that you can think of with drugs that are, or what we call specialty drugs. They're not your run of the mill drugs. They're, they may be oral, but a lot of times they're, they're intravenous, et cetera. But, and there are ways to manage those types of, of drugs through specialty pharmacy. So that's option number one. If that's not an option for you, as an example, some physicians as well as some facilities won't let you bring drugs in from an outside vendor. You have to use their drugs. So well, now you're looking at reimbursing whatever their charges are. So you have to look for ways to contain those costs. So you can try to work directly with providers and negotiate with them upfront if you know what the drug is and what the person's going to be on or on the back end kind of as as claims come in. So negotiation with a provider is an option. A lot of people like this as an option because it allows them to get sign off from a provider and you don't sort of have any issues with the patient being balance billed or kind of getting into a fight with the facility on the back end. But sometimes that's not going to give you the cost containment that you really need. So you can look at other things such as auditing these claims where you can audit them to say reasonable charges. And I'm going to defer to Peter to talk about kind of how you figure out what a reasonable charge is. That's a great question, Peter. How how do you do that? I mean, it, there's not a lot of information despite all of our conversations around transparency and the, the need for that. Information still is really slow leaking out. So if you're a plan or if you're a claimant, how do you do that? Yeah, that's really, that's really one of the big, you know, we call it the black box, right? It's, it's something goes in and that's it. It's still just a black hole. There are a number of different ways about it. And a big part of it is, you know, as you look towards self-funding, you have to be able to be partnering with the right constituents who are, you know, depth at doing these types of services. So when you talk about monitoring and auditing and underwriting and all of these other things, a big piece of it comes down to as a patient and as an employer group, you have to be partnering with the right administrator who has the right folks who can start to give you these suites of services. So there's a number of ways that you're able to, you know, get something is into what's reasonable and customary, but it always comes down to the data sources and there are a variety of different services. There are a variety of different sources that are out there that help you to be able to understand the problem with them as they sit today. They're locked up tight and controlled by, you know, vendors 
In some ways, they're also controlled by entities like the All Payers Claims Database. There's about 11 states that are now starting to collect all this data, and the average patient really can't get access to it. Just to get some kind of you know standard access can be upwards of $35,000. So right now, it's all kind of locked up tight by the people who can afford to pay for it. But once you can get connected with the people who can afford to pay for it, then they're able to leverage those databases and the different sources that are out there to go around back to round back to the provider and say, look, if we're going to allow this to be paid, we need to be allowed it to be paid that something considered reasonable and customary based on like providers in your geozip code who provide the same level of service and care that you do. And when you start to look at those numbers, you can see a massive disparity between what is considered reasonable and customary. And you can pick a percentile if you, you know, if you want to be generous, you can say, well, we'll give you only 10% of the people who make more than you. You could say, hey, we want to kind of get you in the middle. Again, being self-insured allows you to to do these things. So you also need to be able to have the plan document and the benefit structure set up so that you can be afforded the opportunity to even leverage a reasonable and customary audit or a negotiation. What a lot of people don't understand and don't know the way things sit today is if you're in kind of that managed care world, you could be charged anything you want and you could even have access to the data, but the documents that underlie the benefit plan and how it gets administered and how the network contracts work would prohibit you from doing anything anyway. You could be charged, which we, we've seen all the time. We've, you could see something for $42 for one Advil. And the underlying documentation basically says, too bad, you have to reimburse us what you reimburse us. It doesn't matter that you can go buy three bottles of Advil totaling 1,500 pills for $42. doesn't matter. So the data access, it's kind of locked up. It's expensive, but there are constituents within the payer chain, if you're partnered, that can actually help you leverage that. It exists, but it always becomes a fight because the provider doesn't really ever get held accountable for why they charge what they charge. They were allowed to arbitrarily charge whatever they want. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today, you're being pulled in multiple directions. Employers want you to deliver a higher level of service and employee satisfaction, and you want more time to grow your business. How do you do both? Benazon Healthcare Advocacy is the answer. Benazon helps plan members understand, utilize, and maximize their health plan and answers their benefits questions while you improve productivity, increase client retention, and grow your book. The best part about partnering with Benazon is that your agency gets all the credit. Clients see your logo, while the Benazon team of subject matter experts work to ensure resolution to specific member information and service requests. Each agency gets a dedicated telephone number and year-round, 24-7 customer support that answers the phone with your agency name. Turn your benefit on with Benazon. For more information, go to www.benazon.com or click their logo on the Shift Shapers website. Benazon. Healthcare as it should be. Now, back to our interview. 
Do you see that changing anytime soon? It's going to have to change. They're scrambling in some ways now, right? The Affordable Care Act is supposed to, you know, kind of drive some of that change. But really what's happening is that because there's so much movement from that managed care world to self-funding, and when self-funding gets into that spot of being able to enact some kind of change, what you're seeing now is a whole sea change related to reference-based pricing. So they're being forced into it. So when you have groups and administrators and people getting together, putting them, you know, you hate to say it, but the proverbial skin in their game, throwing their hands up, posting a bill like this on a Reddit and saying, you know, how do you even justify this? There's a groundswell now that says we're no longer going to take a top line percent off approach, which says, well, if we bill you a thousand dollars and you're in network and you get a 20% discount, you only have to pay us $800. What's happening now is that there's enough momentum and enough patients and enough administrators and enough people who have enough bodies to go to providers in their network and their area and say, we're no longer going to do that anymore. We're going to do what's called reference-based pricing, RBP. And we're going to take a benchmark that's out there and we're going to give you that number plus some amount. And what they're using right now is they're using Medicare. You know, CMS is a government entity that tracks all the different amounts that the government will pay to a provider for certain procedures and um, overall costs. So in the self-insurance world, they're saying, well, if the government's going to give you 50 cents for an Advil, we're going to give you 75 cents for an Advil. And when you have enough people saying, in order for you to get our business, then you have to accept this type of pricing. Those are one of the things that are out there right now where those types of changes happening. You're also starting to see what's called very much narrow networks popping up. A lot of those narrow networks are solely focused on surgeries. Again, addressing the implant issue, you know, the the top three big areas of overinflation as it relates to costs are typically drugs, implants, and room charges can be, you know, can be a lot of it. And so, you know, the specialty drug issue is kind of, I don't want to say taken care of, but it's kind of being addressed by, as Dr. Warren said before, you know, uh, pharmacy benefit management. Well, there's now this groundswell of narrow networks as it relates to surgeries where they're going in, they're pre-negotiating all-encompassing surgery. You need a knee replacement it is what it is. It's $15,000. It's already negotiated. It's one lump sum where that knee surgery under a typical scenario would probably end up in a bill in excess of $75,000. So they're doing some of these things, but again, because they're in self-insured, they're able to kind of do some of those things. And I think Stacey too can add a bit onto that as well. Yeah, that'd be great. It's interesting because as Peter mentioned, sort of moving towards these reference-based pricing et cetera, doesn't really address the behavior, of course, of the providers, right? What are they going to do? Are they going to change how they're actually billing? Well, in reality, that's not what we're currently seeing in terms of what the providers are doing. So they they know that people are starting to limit their reimbursement to some sort of reference. And what they're doing is the, the prices are still actually going up because obviously if you're going to take some percentage of a reference, the higher your price is, the better off your percentage is. So the providers are, are, are certainly gaming the system. And you also have the additional problem of there's many things out there 
that don't have Medicare as a as a benchmark. And so people are sort of left floundering with, well, what am I going to do? And this is particularly of interest in the cancer world because the specialty drugs that come out for that, a lot of them, as I mentioned before, are oral pills. And Medicare doesn't really have these sort of national coverage determinations for that. They really leave it to what they call their local contractors. And so you kind of have a lot of individual types of things going on, which leaves people scratching their head and saying, well, what am I going to do? What reference am I going to use if I can't use Medicare? And there are other things out there. We we do a lot of audits that look at reasonable and customary and those and those types of things. And we use a lot of different national benchmarks that are out there that are really good and really defensible, which allow you as, you know, a client of ours or or as a group or as an employer or as a TPA or whoever you are to go back to a provider and say, okay, this is kind of ridiculous. This is what we know a manufacturer is going to charge for this pill or what this pill is actually selling at, say at a retail pharmacy your charges are really outrageous. And we're either going to, you know, dance together and come to some sort of compromise, or we're going to just unilaterally reimburse you what we think is fair and reasonable, and you can fight us out for it. Because they can try to go after the patient, and they certainly do threaten to go after the patient. But the reality is the patients aren't going to come up with any of the money. They're, they're going to have to go after, you know, the deeper pockets, for lack of a, a better term. So we're seeing change more in provider behavior in terms of what they're willing to accept versus what they're really doing in terms of, of their charges. The shift is slow, definitely slow, but it's perceptible and things are, are moving. People are kind of fed up with, I'm just going to go through a network because they realize the networks aren't working you know, on their behalf. The network is really trying to serve two masters. They contract both with a provider as well as with a payer. Well, you know, whose interests are you aligned with? Well, depending on how you're getting your money, if you're more aligned with the provider where it makes more sense that higher dollars are going through your network because you're taking a percentage of that, you're not really incentivized to help the payer get those costs down because it's taking money out of, out of your pocket. It's not as simplistic as, well, it's, you know, all the providers and, and, you know, it's the, it, it's all one person. There are so many layers and it, it becomes so complicated that trying to navigate through this, you really need some of this expert guidance to, to kind of get you through the field. So we've, we've got about four or five minutes left. And, and one of the things that I think is a subtext in a lot of what we've been discussing today is starting to try to look forward rather than looking retrospectively. And, and with that, one of the things that gives us the most promise is this kind of up until recently murky field known as predictive modeling. Can we spend a couple of moments talking about predictive modeling as a strategy, what size cohorts you need for it to be viable, and what advisors ought to be looking for to try to get ahead of claims conditions? Yeah, I mean, that is really as, as much as the data is, uh, we talk about it as it is a black box, but there is enough out there to be able to start to do some of these predictive analytics, which can hopefully drive some of the transparency. Cause a lot of the problems we're talking about right now is transparency. Nobody knows, nobody understands. And, you know, there's a universe of information out there. It's in completely disparate sources and you can't really pull it all together. 
But there are options out there that are able to take all the clinical and all the financial and all the statistical data and put it together and create predictive modeling. And what brokers can be doing is getting in touch with those organizations who do predictive modeling, particularly as a plan moves from a fully insured managed care plan over to self-funding. Because the key there is going to be identifying who are those people that will potentially capitulate the plan? And you can't do that unless you have predictive modeling. And where you want to focus those items on are the 200 or so diagnoses that are out there that can create that issue, which is create what we consider a catastrophic claim or the 480 plus specialty pharmaceuticals. I think that's how many there are out there that can run anywhere from $50,000 up to a million dollars a year. And there are options to be able to go out there and say, well, if I have this person who has this diagnosis or has been recently diagnosed with this or is in the middle of the diagnosis and the plan year happens to change, there are enough options out there to be able to take a look at it and say, Within this diagnosis, within this person's state, within this person's network, and even specifically within their treatment, where they are in their treatment, you are able to see what's going to happen for the next 12 months. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is that knowledge becomes very, very powerful. Because if you know that going into it, imagine what you could do. You can pre-negotiate. You can move from one provider to another provider. You can plan reserves accordingly. The world opens up and the way it kind of sits now is if you're in the broker field and you want to be in a very consultative fashion and you want to, you know, bring value to your groups and their and the patients that are part of those groups, being able to go to them and say, look, here are the people who are going to be a problem for your plan and here's exactly why, you know, just drives so much value and squeezes excess dollars out of the the whole payer chain that you desperately need. And quite frankly, they're wasted. And so by getting your hands on these types of analytical tools, the visibility that you have is, it's tremendous. It's completely an eye-opening experience to be able to look at somebody and say, well, with this diagnosis of, you know, be it breast cancer in Florida, in this geographical zip code, and you're down to radiation, don't worry about it. The most you're going to pay is $25,000 over the next 12 months is great. That knowledge becomes huge. Well, you know, there's no question that knowledge is power. I remember my, one of my very first clients when I got into the insurance business back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and we were still writing policies on cave walls said to me once he was a physician and he said, patients will get off their knees when our doctors rather will get off their pedestals when patients get off their knees. That's right. <laughs> and, That's right. You know, knowledge, knowledge is power. I, I, I cannot thank you guys enough for a very interesting discussion. We've been talking with Peter Borns and Dr. Stacy Borns from Advanced Medical Strategies. If you want to chat with them, we'll be featuring their logo, as we always do in the right-hand column of the podcast website, Shift Shapers Online. Peter and Stacy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thank you. We, we enjoyed it. We love chatting about self-funding. Thanks, David. Yeah, we have we have a lot of uh, interesting topics that we covered today, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Well, and please come back. I'd like to continue the conversation. We would too. 
The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.